Welcome to Women in Academia podcast with Irena, where I will interview female researchers to understand the challenges that women in academia are facing today. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy today to have Dr. Sabrina Turman on the podcast. Sabrina is the assistant professor at Elon University. Hello, Sabrina. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being my guest. Can you introduce yourself and tell me more about your current position? Sure. I'm Sabrina Thurman, and I'm about to begin my fourth year at Elon University as an assistant professor in the psychology department. I also direct the infant development lab there where we focus on infant motor development. So I can just kind of give a little bit of background about Elon. Um, we're a primarily undergraduate serving institution. We're a private private institution with close to about 7,000 students. And we identify as a comprehensive liberal arts university, which is kind of interesting because we have a lot of different types of aspects of our identity. So we aren't really a liberal arts college. We're not really a professional school and we're not a research university, but we have elements of all three that we embrace and uh, try, to, try to really capitalize on at Elon. So um, we, just as an example, we do have graduate programs, but not in my department. So in terms of my role as a faculty member in psychology, faculty at Elon strive to create this intellectual climate that integrates research and teaching. And a lot of these efforts have led Elon to be a, a leader in um, undergraduate research. So we have a nationally recognized program in undergraduate research. And um, Elon faculty have committed to what we, what we call a teacher-scholar mentor model. So teaching is the primary focus of Elon faculty, but the, the teacher-scholar mentor model emphasizes that we're both teachers and scholars and not teachers or scholars, which I think is a, a really interesting and unique distinction. Thank you so much for sharing that. Can you tell me more about your background and what brought you to the research? Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm what's known as a striver, which just for your listeners means that I'm from a low-income background and I'm a first-generation college student, meaning by the federal definition that my parents didn't go to college. Um, but just to be clear, no one in my family history that I know of has ever gone to college. Um, so ever since I was really young, I was just kind of obsessed with learning, and I knew that I wanted to go to college and eventually earn a PhD. Um, I went to UNCG for my bachelor's degree. So just a little bit about UNCG. This is the North uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. They have a very diverse student body in terms of race, nationality, uh, socioeconomic status, and a, and a host of other variables. And I think that the faculty there were really well equipped, and they are very well equipped, to support undergraduate students like I was, like students who aren't familiar with the culture of higher education. So just as an example, I was supported by a number of faculty, both in and out of my major, who invited me to do research with them and uplifted me for uh, various university opportunities and recognitions. And as a first-generation student and a striver, I, I think those invitations were really important because I'm not sure that I would have ever known to have reached out to faculty to even work with them. And I would certainly not have known about the awards and recognitions that they nominated me for. Um, at the time, I didn't even know that you could study babies and not be a pediatrician. Um, so this was just all kind of unfamiliar territory to me, but I was just driven by curiosity and learning. I think I'm here today because people recognize skills in me that I didn't know that I had, and I just loved learning. And the more complex it was, the more interesting I thought it was. I think that's one of the reasons I was drawn so much to studying development in particular and, and motor development. Um, I got really interested in the field of developmental psycho psychobiology 
epistemology, which is a systems perspective um, that has some roots in ethology, uh, which is the study of animal behavior. So I got really interested in infant research because in some ways infants are like other animals in that they can't complete questionnaires or do interviews like this. Um, you have to observe them. Uh, you have to observe their development and learning as it's happening. And that means for me, observing babies and their bodies and movements. Thank you so much. That's amazing story. Well done for achieving this. <laughs> Thank you. Can you tell me what are the biggest challenges you have faced and obstacles you have to overcome on your journey? And if you had to start over, what would you do differently? Yeah, so being a striver, I think, comes with a lot of personal challenges. So Jennifer Morton has a, a really excellent book on strivers called Moving Up Without Losing Your Way, The Ethical Costs of Upward Mobility, where she argues that many strivers have to make sometimes really difficult decisions that sometimes impossibly ask them to choose between their family and friends and community and the pursuit of higher education. Uh, so for example, many young adults choose to move away from home to attend college, and that's a normal thing. Uh, but strivers often have to do this in order to gain access to those spaces. Uh, maybe it's that they don't live in an area where higher education is available, or sometimes strivers have to move away from home uh, because there are problems or difficulties at home that might interfere with their ability to gain an education. So moving away and, and losing connections with family and friends and communities can sometimes lead to really drastic challenges with identity development as strivers in some ways have to kind of straddle both worlds. So the world that they come from and then the new world of higher education that they kind of are striving to navigate. I think the result for me is that I've shaped an identity that's somewhat unique as I've tried to integrate both my background of growing up as a kid uh, from a low-income background in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina and my new identity as a professor at an institute of higher, higher learning and higher education. It has been uh, and it will continue to be a really interesting journey, which I think kind of leads me to another challenge that a lot of women, including myself, have experienced, and that's imposter syndrome, which is this kind of nagging form of intellectual self-doubt that you don't actually deserve the job or the success or the accomplishments that you have. So the research on imposter syndrome is somewhat mixed, but some, some research suggests that women experience or at least report higher rates of imposter syndrome compared to men. So it's interesting to me as a developmental psychologist because even as children, boys tend to be overconfident in their abilities, whereas girls tend to show underconfidence. But the good thing is, is that uh, just knowing about imposter syndrome, just, you know, similar to other kinds of psychological threats that we experience, it can help people to kind of recognize the thought patterns and behaviors that may make their experience worse. Um, some other things that I think can help with imposter syndrome are learning to value constructive feedback that you get, and then having a strong personal and professional network. You had another question too about things I might do differently. So it kind of relates to that a little bit about having a strong network. So when I was an undergraduate, I placed a huge emphasis on focusing on my own individual path and earning good grades. I think the undergraduate career is, is very individual, like your grades are like the center of your attention and your accomplishments. But I think when I got to graduate school, I realized that that's not how graduate school is. <laughs> and this is the realization I think a lot of students have. So it took me a while to learn that any scientific pursuits are actually best completed as a team and how much there is to actually be gained from being a collaborative member of a community 
uh, centered on building knowledge together. So I'm still finding ways as a faculty member that I can do more to support people in my department and my university. And now that I have this role, I'm trying to teach my mentees, my students, uh, the importance of working together so that we can meet our collective goals. Thank you so much. That's amazing. How do you manage your work-life balance? Yeah, so I'm still trying to find my groove in this regard. <laughs> But I think for many academics, the boundaries between work and home are really kind of blurred. When we think about our students, for example, our research, our service, on the drive home, uh, when we go on walks around our neighborhoods, when we're on vacation even, So certainly, you know, this could be a bad thing because it can lead to burnout, which is a very real and terrible result of prolonged stress. But I think many academicians make it as far as they did because they love what they do. And that is a privilege, I think, to love your work. So for a lot of us, our work is our passion. It's our excitement and our love. But we do have to disengage sometimes. And I think that means uh, we understand when our passion is harmonious or when it might be obsessive. And I teach about some of these uh, distinctions in one of my courses, my lifespan development course. So just to kind of explain the difference, uh, harmonious passion in a work environment is what we should all aim to have. Um, it comes from this sense of belonging and feeling rooted within a larger community. It's a sense of being able to see your progress and reflect on it um, and having some control over the work that you're doing itself. Um, so it allows people to kind of be in, in control of their own work and disconnect when they need to. Obsessive passion, on the other hand, is mostly driven by external sources of motivation. So it's, it's more characterized by dissatisfaction or frustration with the work, and it can be very controlling and rigid, and it's comprised mostly of negative experiences. And people who have obsessive passion um, sometimes experience this inability to disengage with their work easily and without guilt. So I think what I try to do is find the love and find the passion and find the excitement in what I do. So the love for my research, my colleagues, and my students. And I think it's especially important right now uh, during the coronavirus because so many people are hurting. So that means I, uh, practicing things like you know, trauma-informed pedagogy or showing empathy for our students and for ourselves. Um, I think many academicians, including myself, can be better about self-care. Um, graduate school, for example, is notorious for being this environment where students struggle with balancing these competing priorities and managing self-care. And this continues to be an important issue for new faculty, um, for all faculty. Just earlier this year, I had problems with uh, getting tension headaches where I couldn't turn my head or neck for over a week due to stress. It was like my, my neck just kind of stiffened up and it was very painful. And so I'm still working on all these things myself, but I think it's important to constantly remind ourselves and surround ourselves with other people who remind us to take care of ourselves. Um, so self-care involves taking care of, of, of us mentally, emotionally, and physically. And it means knowing things like knowing your boundaries, uh, positive self-talk, talking to a therapist, trying to take moments to feel gratitude. It's difficult right now, but embracing change, giving up the need for control, that's really hard for me to do. <laughs> um, but finding a hobby outside of your, your professional work. So mine, for example, is gardening. And there, there's so much more. There are so many things that we can do for ourselves that could be considered self-care. 
And it's going to look different for different people depending on what works for you. But I think the, one of the big ideas is surrounding ourselves with people who truly care about us and our success. And that can go such a long way. So I'm very fortunate that I've had numerous professional relationships like that throughout my academic career since I was an undergrad and in graduate school with my mentor and all the mentors that I've worked with. Um, it's, it's been such a supportive experience. Thank you so much for sharing that knowledge. Yeah. I'm sure it will be helpful to many, many people. Can you tell me more about your research? Yeah, so I study the impact of learning new motor skills on infants' behavior. So if you think about it, infants come into the world with very little control over their movements, and they spend months uh, being completely reliant on their caregivers to move them and take them from place to place. But uh, there are these really drastic changes that happen pretty quickly when infants learn how to control their arms and their hand movements and start to reach for and pick up objects. And especially uh, there are a lot of uh, big changes that take place when babies learn how to locomote, which basically means that they're learning how to move their own bodies in space. So that's th those are things like crawling and walking. So suddenly it's like new levels of their home become accessible to them as they learn to pull up and as they uh, learn to crawl or as they learn to let go and walk out into the middle of the room. So their new, their new skills, their new postures are dramatically changing how they interact with objects and furniture and people in their environments. So one of the studies that I have published is, uh, is a longitudinal study that tracks mother-infant dyads in free play sessions across the first year of life, or really the first two years of life. So we were interested in tracking how mothers and babies explored this play space differently as babies learned to crawl and walk. One of the main findings from that study is as soon as infants learned how to crawl, they were much more active in the play space and they were, they were much more active than their mothers and they moved around more and interacted with objects more. And their um, interactions in the space were strongly tied and correlated to how much they were actually moving. So infants spent more time away from their mothers over that period. Um, and we were really able to kind of see how the acquisition of locomotion dramatically kind of reorganized how infants moved around in the space. And most of the changes that we observed were surprisingly around that crawling onset as opposed to walking onset. So there, there weren't really that many drastic changes that occurred when babies got upright and started walking up on their feet, which is um, kind of interesting. We also studied how um, infants and mothers use their different body postures differently over locomotor development to interact with objects. So uh, just a couple examples of findings from that. Infants tended to use sitting postures more for detailed fine motor interactions like twisting and spinning objects, especially before they learned how to crawl. And they, they tended to use, the babies uh, tended to use standing postures mostly for passive involvement with objects where they were just kind of holding on or had their hand on the toy. So the way that they were using their postures depended on the posture, the way that they were interacting with objects, excuse me, depended on the posture, but it also depended on how skilled they were in that posture, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, so those findings really added to the literature on how the acquisition of new postures can really impact how babies use their bodies uh, as they're exploring their environments. Very interesting and important research. Well done. Thank you. Can you tell me what are your hopes for your future research? Yeah, so this one's a little tricky right now. <laughs> the coronavirus has impacted 
in-person data collection for so many people who study human behavior. Uh, data collection for the last several months for a lot of people has been disrupted. In my lab, my research mentees and collaborators and I are shifting our attention to kind of focusing more on several other coding projects that we have uh, because that, that's existing data. So we're kind of looking at, you know, that longitudinal data, that, that play behavior and seeing what other kinds of things can we look at in this, which is, it's kind of a, it, considering the situation, it's a, good, it's a good situation to be in to have longitudinal free play data. <laughs> mm. I mean, that's, that's a good place to be. We're also collecting data right now for an online survey about uh, parental beliefs about motor development mm -hmm. and the impact that has on the baby's acquisition of motor skills. So I am working with my students and my collaborators to recruit first-time parents living in the USA who have a one to seven month old baby. So any eligible parents who might be listening, uh, feel free to email me or my lab for more information. We'd love to have you. I will put in the description notes um, data of your um, lab, like lab website, yes. so yes. parents can reach you. That would be wonderful. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Can you tell me what are the top issues you see women in academia face today? Yeah, so this is a I think a systemic kind of issue uh, in the US at least, but also more broadly uh, across the world. So I think institutions of higher education need faculty who share identities and backgrounds with their student body. That means that we need more women faculty in fields that are traditionally dominated by men. We also need more women faculty promoted to the level of full professor. And there are a lot of factors that kind of go into that. We need more faculty of color. Having faculty mentors with a broader range of identities will provide those essential supports that are necessary for students from underrepresented groups who will eventually become our colleagues in those fields. We also, I think, need to work to, once, once we get a more representative faculty, to achieve greater equity in faculty experiences. So for example, women faculty, and particularly women of color, take on a disproportionate number of service roles within their institutions, which can have a negative impact on their teaching and research productivity, which ultimately affects things like promotion and tenure decisions. Many, many universities also rely really heavily on student evaluations of instructors for, for tenure and promote, promotion decisions and countless studies have shown student perceptions are biased against women and people of color. So I think increased monitoring of those negative trends can help raise awareness about these issues and hopefully eliminate them. I agree with you, thank you so much. Can you tell me what is the one piece of advice you would give to a young woman thinking about academia or to women just starting out in academia? Ah, it's so tricky to narrow this down to one piece, <laughs> one piece <laughs> of advice. Um, I think one recommendation that kind of captures a lot of ideas is building a strong support network for yourself. So for example, the culture that I grew up surrounded by was fairly traditional and viewed men as the head of the household and the main breadwinners for the family. So for women who want another kind of life, I think it's important to find a supportive partner who isn't going to be challenged by your success as a woman. Building a strong network, I think, also means finding mentors who are going to help you. So looking for mentors who are kind, but who will also give you the feedback that you need to hear 
to challenge you and help you grow. Also, I think sometimes new faculty can feel really isolated as this new person in their careers or departments. So don't be afraid to ask for help or put yourself out there. The big message I think is you made it there, you made it where you are for a reason, you have a lot to offer, and you really belong anywhere that you want to be. That's such a great advice. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I enjoyed it. It was episode. a pleasure. <laughs> thank yes, you. it was a pleasure. I'm so happy to be a part of this project. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck with your research. Thank you. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>